If you could begin making your way back to your seats and grab your Bibles as you do, head on over to Matthew chapter 7. We are going to be shutting down our study on the Sermon on the Mount this morning. And really what this morning amounts to is not a difficult text to understand, um, but it is one that is not only a great summary and conclusion to what Jesus has been teaching that we have been studying, uh, that covering Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7, it's also a tremendous launching point for where we are going. And we've not yet talked a lot about where we're going next, but here is where we're going to go next. Beginning next Sunday, we're going to start our fall series and begin thinking about and walking through Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and considering things that happened at the beginning and all of what that means. Now, I will tell you, we're not even going to get to Genesis 1 until October. So for the next four Sundays, we're going to be, in many ways, doing a lot of preparation to get there. So next Sunday, where we will begin this entire series, is I want us to actually consider the question, what do we lose if we do not see Genesis 1, 2, and 3 as actual history? What do we lose in that? This morning, Jesus' words are going to be about hearing and doing his word, which I will contend applies to all of the scriptures. Well, what do we lose if we say that some of it's true, but other parts of it are not true? And we're going we're gonna to walk through that and aim to answer that question. And next Sunday is going to be unique. We're going to do that and answer that question in a way that we've never answered a question before. And so it will be highly participatory, and I think it's going to be, it, it, it's going to be different. I at least know that. So um, if next week has piqued your interest at all, um, it'll be good. The week after, we're going to consider what the Bible says about how God is so immense and yet has his focus and attention in a special way on us, on those created in his image on mankind and time and time again throughout the scriptures there's this resounding theme that God is huge and he cares for the details in my life and we're going to think about little me in God's big world and God's big universe because there's some things there that our our understanding of who God is as creator does that he intends to do when we face difficulties, when we face hardships, when we face unknowns, the constant refrain is, God's got this. He's got it. And we're going to walk through and unpack that. In week three, we're going to look through and consider just who were the agents of creation. It is the New Testament's contention that it was Christ specifically who created all things and whom all things are created for, and the one currently right now upholding all things by the word of his power. We're going to unpack that because you have the doctrine of the Trinity really in the very beginning pages and verses of the scriptures as well. We're going to try to unpack that and unfold that. The very last Sunday in September will be unique as well. We're going to bring in a guest from the University of Penn State, a retired professor, and his name is Dr. Jeremy Walter. Yes, he does have the same name as Justin Walter because he's his father, and so it works well, um, but he is a PhD level doctor in engineering, 
and uh, he is a, a Christian and a just tremendous man, and will unpack and help us perhaps from a more scientific perspective, ask and answer some questions about science and the Bible. And who better perhaps to do so than somebody with science credentials who is involved in those fields and is, is actually at a pretty high level in those fields. And so we're going to have a combined CE that morning and uh, all adults will be in here and he'll present to us and then we'll, we'll cut that short and then have an opportunity for Q&A right there on the spot during CE Sunday School about what he just presented to us, and then come the worship service, I will not be preaching, but rather Dr. Walter will be answering questions that hopefully you send in and give to us along the way. So beginning this morning, there is a number up there on the screen. You can text your questions about creation to that number. If you want to put your name on it, great. If you don't, that's fine as well. And they can be anything. I should probably tell you, standard message and data rates apply. But for that morning on September 30th to be the most profitable for us, knowing what questions you want answered is going to help us a long way in getting there. And then... Uh, Lord willing, you do so quickly, and we can kind of try to pick out and identify some common themes. Um, I very much anticipate questions about dating, and I should say that differently. Um, (laughs) Very much anticipate questions about age of the earth and dating methods, and well, doesn't carbon-14 dating tell us that something's X number of million years old, and how does that jive with Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and all of those kind of things? Those are legitimate questions. Those are legitimate questions. I think there's some legitimate answers to them as well, um, and Dr. Walter, I know for a fact, is even going to have us considering the fact that dinosaurs which we've been told are millions of years old and have been extinct for millions of years, they're currently finding and unearthing dinosaur bones that still have soft tissue in them. So blood vessels that are still spongy. And that doesn't happen if you have millions of years. It's actually a whole lot sooner. So we want to step into that. We're not going to run from any of those conversations because those are good questions, hard questions. Well, let's have them. And let's, let's take advantage of the opportunity we have for a PhD level uh, scientist to be in our midst and to help us walk through some of those things. So that's where we're going. And then come October, we're going to step in then to Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and just really unpack all three of those chapters until and leading up to um, our, our last Sunday in November when we will have an opportunity for praise, prayer requests, testimonies, as typically we have done the last several years, that Sunday right after Thanksgiving. So that's a little bit of where we're going. Obviously, then we hop into Christmas soon after. And uh, we are just a few short months away from Christmas. Some of you may not want to know that, but there you go. Um, so this morning, we are wrapping up our series in the Sermon on the Mount. And here's where we've been over the last three weeks. The last set of verses beginning in verse 13 all the way through this morning uh, really amounts to be Jesus' conclusion to what he's been saying. He ties together some themes. He makes some things pretty clear. And so as we looked at 
Now, two weeks ago, Jesus makes really no bones about it or pulls any punches that salvation is found only in and through him. He tells us in verses 13 and 14, look, there, there's two ways. There's a, there's a narrow way and there's a wide way. There's a narrow gate and a wide gate. Those that go through the wide gate and are on the wide road will find destruction. Those that go through the narrow gate and are on the narrow road will find life. We unpacked that and understood from other things that he said, Jesus said elsewhere, that that just means that he's the only one whom salvation is found in. Last week we unpacked in verses 15 to 23 what it looks like for and what true obedience looks like in really practical application. And there was two big questions, two warnings, if you will, that we were given that we need to first be on guard regarding who we place ourselves under, whose authority we submit to, who we listen to regarding spiritual things. And Jesus says, look, beware, there's false prophets or false teachers that are coming. And they look innocent on the outside and yet inside they're ravenous wolves and just as we quipped last week, the main difference between wolves and sheep is sheep eat grass and wolves eat sheep. And we need to be watchful for the wolves that may on the outside, on the very front side, have a great message that sounds encouraging and what we want. But yet, we're to look at the fruit of their lives and judge the content of their teaching and be on guard. But Jesus also had a warning in many ways, a dire warning for those of us inside the church building. That if we're trusting in anything else for salvation, if we would, would come and stand before him is the image that he gives and were to be asked the question, why do I let you in? If the answer is anything other than I've trusted in you for salvation, his words are, depart from me, I never knew you. And he listed three amazing things that these individuals in this illustration had done. Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we, didn't we do mighty works in your name? Did Jesus, didn't we do some things for you? And we kind of applied that more broadly to even our context. Didn't we give money on Sunday mornings? Didn't we have perfect Sunday attendance? Didn't we, didn't we serve as an usher? Weren't we baptized whenever? It did, all of these things, and yet... His warning is that if our trust is in those things and not ultimately him, then he says, depart from me, I never knew you. And there's no bones about it. Those are hard words. And they're not intended to be soft words because he, in, in a very loving way, is trying to identify where you and I may be on the wide road that leads to destruction and not the narrow road that leads to life. And so to hear that, well, yeah, you, you, you participated in communion, but you never trusted in me for salvation, that's a hard thing. But if the stakes are eternity with him or eternity apart from him, then it's a really loving and gracious thing as well. So that's where we were last week. This week, Jesus is going to walk through and help us unpack Really how obedience in our lives provides stability for our lives. One commentator and scholar said this, and I thought it was just really helpful. The last four paragraphs, which would have begun in verse 13, the last four paragraphs of this sermon stress two unyielding themes 
The first is that there's only two ways. There's one that leads to life and there's one that leads to destruction. The second theme is that the way to life is characterized by obedience to Jesus and practical conformity to his teaching. And he, I think in many ways, went over and beyond in trying to communicate in a way that his original audience and us could understand. And he used metaphors all throughout these four chapters or four paragraphs. He's talked about doorways and roadways and animals and vineyards and builders and house foundations and storms. I mean, those are all things that you and I can relate to in some way or another. And this morning, as we think about the wise and foolish builder, the resounding theme is that obedience provides stability. And Jesus says, the one who hears these words of mine and does them is like the wise man who has a stable life. So I want to pray and then we'll read the text and we'll walk through and unpack it a little further. Would you join me? Father God, thank you for your word. God, as we come to this point each and every week, we come again acknowledging that you have spoken and it's in our best interest to draw near and listen. And so God, I pray for clarity, that we would hear well, that we would think well, that we would think accurately, that we would understand God, I pray that you'd help us to unpack and see how these verses apply to our lives today. God, you promise stability for the one who hears your word and does them. Help us to be those people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's go to verse 24 and let's read the text together. We'll go 24 to 27 and just take through and then we'll step back and unpack a little bit. Jesus says in verse 24, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, or does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So obedience provides stability. The wise man still has a house. The house stood fast. It stood Tall, It was able to withstand the storm that came against it. And Jesus says, whoever hears these words of mine and does them, in, a, in an immediate way, what he has in mind is the words that he's just spoken. The words that began in chapter 5, when he went onto a hillside and began with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then walks through what we've now taken months to walk through in chapters 5, 6, and 7. And just to think back to some of the things that Jesus has talked about. He's, he's talked about eternal stability. 
The poor in spirit has the kingdom of heaven. Those who trust in Jesus as the only way have stability in an eternal sense. That's the road that leads to life. He's talked about financial stability. He's talked about marital stability as he unpacked some instructions regarding both lust and adultery and divorce. He's talked about relational stability, about how you and I interact with one another. He's talked about stability in the face of opposition. How we're to respond if, if, we, if, if somebody opposes us in one form or another. How we're to not respond in kind, but to pray for them and be kind to them. You know, there's stability there when that takes place. He's talked about stability of purpose. Therefore, let your light shine. So that they might see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There's a purpose communicated there. We've tried to uh, refine really what the New Testament teaches about our purpose and put it into a mission statement that we exist to glorify God by making disciple, making disciples. We let our light shine so that the disciples we make may also in turn glorify God. There's a purpose communicated there. It gives our life purpose. We're not aimlessly drifting, wondering what am I to do? There's a purpose that we have. And here Jesus says, the one who hears my words and does them will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. There's five different contrasts that Jesus gives in these three verses. There's two people who built two houses on two foundations. They endured two storms and had two different Results. It's interesting as we just look at that, it's just an observation, probably not deeply theological, but the people were different, but there's really no indication that the houses were different. The foundations were clearly different, one's rock, one's sand, but there's really no indication that the storm was different, but the result was different. So you have different, same, different, same, different. It's just an observation in the text, and we don't have to even really stretch our minds too far to understand what this might have looked like. I'm fairly convinced that when Jesus used metaphors in his teaching, he did so because the people he was teaching had a framework to understand what he was teaching about. So when he talks about sheep, they may have at some point looked at the hillside and seen sheep. Some of them may have been shepherds, or they might have just been able to go, oh yeah, I know a shepherd. He's my neighbor. The guy smells a little bit. All right, so when he's talking about houses, I'm convinced that these individuals at least had a picture of a house built on a solid foundation and were capable of imagining what a house built on a sandy foundation would have happened if a storm indeed had come. Perhaps both had been undertaken at some point. We don't have to go real far to understand the metaphor either. Back in 2006, I had the opportunity, no, 2007, I had the opportunity to be down in the, and on the Gulf Coast in Mississippi and be a part of some cleaning, very minor rebuilding efforts after Hurricane Katrina ripped through the Gulf states. A few years after that, it was in 2013, I had an opportunity to lead a team of guys to Staten Island to be a part of some cleaning and rebuilding opportunities as Hurricane Sandy ripped up the East Coast. And we saw these things on display. Just last year, Hurricane Harvey 
just devastated Houston. And I wanted to show you some pictures of what I was able to experience. And this is on Staten Island. We arrived and our, our, our contact, his name was Tom, wanted to take us by the places that we were going to do work. And he wanted us to see things. Uh, guys, can we kind of bring the lights down just a little bit maybe up there to let those darker pictures be a little bit more obvious. And so we just kind of drove around a little bit. And, and looked at things, and the house there that's on the right was the house that we did work in. The house there on the left, and we came about six or seven months after the storm went through, the house there on the left was still all broken down, and things had not been removed. And you can see some standing water there in the street. The standing water was not from the hurricane. Here's, though, what the standing water was from. These individuals who owned these houses built these houses in a place that was referred locally to as the swamp. It was below sea level. And so when that storm surge came through, or any storm came through, water collected. And you see standing water there that was a couple inches deep, quite frankly, at that point. Just from a rainstorm that came through as we drove in to Staten Island. And it wasn't that heavy of a rain, but you can imagine what a hurricane would have done as it churned up the ocean. And so we got to see the house that we were going to be doing work at. Just to give you an idea of how high the water level rose, if you can see just a little bit of the discoloration in the siding, the arrows pointing to it, it's about 12 feet tall. That's how high the water rose to these houses in Staten Island. Now, we did not work on that house that's in the picture there. We worked on a house right next to it, but had the opportunity to talk to the homeowners of that house. Their story was that they climbed into the attic space of their house, which is not a large space, you can tell. And there, with their pets and their family, watched the water rise out of the little hole and then watched it stop short about a foot from coming into the attic space. But you can imagine what 12 feet of water would do, and that and it, it's just flowing into windows, absolutely devastating everything. Here was back the next day, we came back to the house that we had driven past the first night, and city crews had removed all the debris from the house there to the left, and so we then began working on the house to the right there. Here's the inside of that house. That's really what it looked like when we arrived. By the time our first team was done, um, we had some walls framed up, plumbing, electrical was all taken care of. When I went back a couple years later and Mike Thompson and another buddy and I were together, we actually got to walk through that house and see the inside of it, which was really neat to see the completed process and these homeowners being back into their home. Um, but you can just see that, that everything was taken out because everything had been destroyed. Here's a picture of the floor of the house. If you find the window at the top of your screen, you're not going to be able to see the two by four studying particularly well, but it's completely rotted and it's gone. And we were putting in new studs and trying to find places to attach them to the old. And these houses actually had to be cabled together at the top so the walls wouldn't just fall out on themselves. 
But at the middle of the screen, there looks to be what is new wood, and it is new wood because we, at that point, had to completely rebuild the sill plate of this home to give the floor even a foundation to be able to hang on. And then we had to go in and rebuild the floor, and then we went with walls thereafter. I found this to be quite humorous. This is the house I just showed you. Um, city building inspector came by and saw that there was no apparent structural hazards. Okay, there's not a floor in the house. There's no two-by-four studying it. And there was a lot of structural hazards. Great was the fall because of it, is what Jesus says. We have images in our day, daily lives that gives us a picture of what Jesus is saying in regards to the stability that obedience provides. And as I mentioned, the immediate context of Jesus' words here are about the Sermon on the Mount. They're about what he has just been preaching. But the broader context, I personally believe we can apply to all of the Scriptures. So it's not wrong to apply Jesus' words of hearing and obeying to the rest of God's word, and I want to spend a few minutes unpacking that. It's not terribly difficult for us to understand what Jesus is saying. Hear and obey what I've said, and you'll have a strong, stable foundation. But I would contend that that is much broader than just these three chapters. And so I want to unpack that a little bit, and this is what sets us up well to begin Genesis 1, 2, and 3 next Sunday. Jesus said this to a group of religious rulers in And it was recorded in John 5, if you believed Moses, now that's a way for him to say, if you believed the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it's the law. If you believed what Moses wrote, you would believe in me, for he wrote about me. What? Here Jesus is contending that what Moses had to write in those first five books of the Bible are actually about him. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? It's a tremendous question. Jesus here is clearly communicating he understands, at least in this passage, the first five books of the Old Testament to be about him. And if we were to look at the first five books of the Old Testament, we would understand things about him. That's the critique he's offering to these religious rulers. They may have quite likely had the first five books of the Bible memorized. And Jesus is saying, you guys missed the point. I'm the point. It's about me. If you've got your Bibles, go to Psalm 1. It was a little bit too lengthy of a passage to put on the screen, and I don't intend to preach through it. I've done that a couple different times. And this morning, we're just going to read through it. I want to make just a couple brief observations as we keep tracking and unpacking this idea of God's Word being the foundation. Not just Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, but all of God's Word. And so it's in Psalm 1 where the psalmist is introducing. All of the psalms that are to follow, he says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. 
He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Incredibly similar ideas to what Jesus has said in Matthew 7. The wise man who hears my words and does them is the one who built his house on the rock. There's stability in the midst of the storm. The foolish man is the one that suffers destruction and utter ruin. And great is the fall because of the foolish man's unwillingness to obey. Well, the psalmist here just changes the metaphor for us. And it's not building and houses, it's, it's agriculture. So the wise man, the one who is delighting in the law of the Lord, is like a tree planted by the streams of water in the desert. That tree is going to have access to nourishment from the water that's flowing through the stream. And the tree is flourishing. It's doing what healthy trees are supposed to do. It's making leaves in the spring. It's producing fruit. When it's time to produce fruit, the, the tree is doing what it's to do, but the wicked are like the chaff. Now, the chaff was the byproduct of grain that was not kept. And so when grain was harvested, they would have, and they developed some pretty in, ingenious technology to do so, they, they had a, a method for cracking the, the grain so that the wheat would be, and the seed would be able to be separated from the chaff. And after they cracked it, they would, they would find some way to either like snap up a blanket or a towel or whatever, or throw it up in the air on a windy day, and the seed, the grain, was heavy enough that it would just fall, thanks to gravity, but the chaff was light enough that the wind would pick it and make it fly away. And so he's using that agricultural metaphor to say, look, the one who doesn't delight in the law, the one who doesn't delight in the word, is like the chaff that's just going to be driven away. It's the byproduct, it's the waste of wheat and grain that is worth nothing. Very similar to the foolish man building his house on the sand. We have in Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13, the writer telling us, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now watch what happens here. And no creature is hidden from his sight. See the pronoun shift there? Now we're talking about a person all of a sudden. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Time will not permit us this morning to unpack the relationship between the written word of God and Jesus, the incarnate word of God. But these two verses in Hebrews place them both together and say they work interchangeably so. And so God's word is capable of dividing even the most indivisible parts of us. And we'll have to stand before Jesus and give an account. Take your Bibles and go to 2 Timothy 3. I want to look at 12 to 17 briefly with you as well. We've looked at verses 12 and 13 the past couple weeks together. Because there the Apostle Paul has some instructions about what it looks like to be a believer in the midst of a growing hostile world 
towards believers, as culture continually just says no to Christianity, to the exclusive claim that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life, that no one comes to the Father but by him. There's some things that are going to just be expected. And so in verses 12 and 13, we have that articulated. And Paul says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now watch what happens. Here's the new part for us. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Now that was Timothy's grandmother and his mother, Lois and Eunice. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. That was the Old Testament which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul just said that the Old Testament is capable of leading us in faith to salvation through Christ. And he continues, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 24, He who hears these words of mine and does them is like the wise man. Built his house upon the rock. There's a stability that obedience provides. And part of the reason I wanted to just kind of tour around the scriptures and try to communicate and unpack with you that this means more than just Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. That does mean all of the scriptures. Is because I just want us to see as we begin our next series, that it's clear from the writers of the scriptures that it's an all or nothing thing. That either it's all true or you should just dismiss all of it as fables and fairy tales and not worth your time. The Old Testament is able to make wise for salvation. You can read Genesis through Deuteronomy and find Jesus in them. And if you're unable to, he's going to critique you for not being able to do so. As he did to those religious rulers. I would contend as we begin to step into a series about creation. That one of the most pressing questions that will have to answer and that will just continually come against is one that regards to what we believe about God's word and its authority and its reliability. I think the consistent testament of the New Testament, the consistent testimony of the New Testament is that the Old Testament is reliable. It's true, it's accurate. Now, in my mind, the next question that logically comes is, how do we know we actually have the word? And I think it's a really fair question to ask. And as we approach this series in creation, as I've already said, we're not at all looking to try to skirt hard questions. Quite frankly, if we believe that the Bible is completely true and that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. We should not run from hard questions. We should welcome hard questions because there's nothing that we have to be afraid of. Now, it doesn't mean that we have all the answers. 
It doesn't mean that Dr. Walter is going to be able to answer absolutely everything that we might throw at him on 40 minutes on a Sunday morning. But it does mean that we shouldn't be afraid to ask the questions and try to unpack the evidence. And so just as we kind of begin to wrap up here this morning, I want to kind of transition out of Matthew 7 and just briefly address that question. How do we know that what we have actually is reliable? Well, to begin with, I need to just make a statement of honesty to say there's nobody, there's no believer that can credibly claim that they have 100% certainty, absolute certainty, that we have God's word. We don't have any of the originals, and so we just need to acknowledge that. The question is not, do we have 100% certainty? I would submit the question is, do we have reasonable certainty? Can we reasonably conclude that what we have is God's word and reliable? And so to that, we begin by looking at historical evidence. Archaeological evidence, quite frankly, is entirely and incredibly helpful. I was in the room with a forensic archaeologist about a month ago at National Conference and overheard him making the statement to somebody else who had asked a question to him. Uh, When you dig up artifacts, they don't come with a little tag that tells you how old they are. And so what happens is that forensic archaeologists begin to do work. Some of it's very scientific. Some of it's just logical thinking. But they do it based on a whole bunch of assumed assumptions, assumed assumptions, assumed set of assumptions, that if this was true and if that was true, and, and he, it was amazing. He said, you know, if you actually read one of the reports that a forensic archaeologist writes, you're going to find that it's about 100 pages long and immensely boring because it's overqualified with hypothetical language. But what happens is that we just get to the museum and it says, boom, X number of years old. All of that to say, there's a discipline at work and there's people thinking. But what happens is digs continue to take place, certainly over in the Middle East and elsewhere, is that they're continually finding artifacts from empires and kingdoms that correspond exactly to what the biblical account and record has. I read... Somewhere, I believe it's in my study Bible, that there's never been one ounce of archaeological evidence to disprove disprove any claim in the Bible. We can go to archaeological evidence, and we got to do work. We got to try to unpack why why do they say millions of years, and God's word might say just a couple thousand. How does that work? We got to do work, but that historical evidence is important. There's then the scroll and manuscript evidence regarding God's word specifically. You have not the originals. We don't have the two stone tablets that Moses came down the mountain after God engraved the Ten Commandments on them. But what we have is a consistent record of manuscripts and scrolls that is unbelievably accurate to itself. Now, there are some discrepancies. The majority of those discrepancies and and differences between them is just, quite frankly, differences in spelling. 
And I was listening this past week to a, a New Testament scholar whose entire life is devoted to digging into New Testament manuscripts and studying the differences, cataloging them, and, and, and trying to unpack them. And he said the majority of the differences in the New Testament and the manuscript evidence we have is in regards to just spelling errors or differences of spelling. So in our context, it would be like spelling the name John with an H or without an H. Well, you've got to acknowledge, honestly, there's a difference. They're not 100% accurate. But you've got to ask the next set of questions, though. Is it reasonably accurate, and does that change the content and what went on there? That same scholar, Dr. Daniel Wallace, um, in referencing the, a comparison between the amount of first century, second century manuscript evidence we have for um, like Homer's Odyssey and all of those classic Greek mythological stories that are accepted as not real in the sense that they happened, but real in the sense that they were written and they were written by somebody from that time period, when they were written, the majority of those, if you stacked them on top of one another, would reach four feet tall. You can just stack all the manuscripts up for what we have for Homer's Odyssey and those Greek mythological stories. It's just about four feet tall. If you take all the manuscripts that are from that period of time, written and translated and put into other languages that encompass the New Testament, it's over a mile tall. Stacking them end to end. So one of the reasons that there may be a lot of differences is there's a lot of material. And yet we can find ourselves very quickly willing to go, yeah, Homer's Odyssey was written back then. Oh, Matthew? I'm not so sure about that. It can be really inconsistent in some ways. There's manuscript and scroll Evidence. There's eyewitness testimony. Eyewitness testimony for both those who were following Jesus and those who weren't. And I think, quite frankly, the evidence from those who weren't is just as if not more compelling than those who were. This is what I mean by that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus appeared to 500 people. You can go interview them if you want to. Here's some of their names. Go look them up. They'll tell you what they saw. Those are people that are for Jesus, certainly have a vested interest in obeying Jesus and proclaiming the gospel in obedience to him. But then you had first century historians that wrote, you know what, there was this guy whose name's Jesus, and there was a scandal surrounding his birth in Bethlehem, and we're not really sure what took place, but King Herod, he, he killed a lot of babies because he was threatened because somebody thought this little baby was going to be a king. And then we didn't hear from him for a while, but then he grew up and started doing miracles. And he did miracles, and there was these guys that followed them, and they were homeless vagabonds who were uneducated common men. And, and, and then like the Romans put him on a cross and killed him. And then Thomas buried him in his tomb and they sealed it with a stone and wax and all of this. And then his disciples three days later started claiming the body was gone. I personally find some of that more compelling. Because those are individuals that don't believe that Jesus rose from the grave. They're going to conclude that it was his disciples that just made it up and fabricated the story. And just ran around telling people, oh, he's, he's risen, he's risen. But what they record 
as having seen and heard was Jesus was a real guy who was really put to death and buried in a tomb and then whose followers really did run around telling everybody he's no longer there. And then perhaps the most craziest thing at all, they were willing to risk their lives. Not just risk their lives, give their lives. They weren't recanting when faced with death. We got to do something with eyewitness testimony. That's historical evidence, present day evidence. We have to ask a couple questions. If we start from the position that the Bible is true from beginning to end, the first question we have to ask is, does the Bible speak truthfully about the things that we can see and observe today? And as we've already acknowledged, there's, there's going to be some hard questions there. When you talk about dating methods and age of the earth and those kind of things, there's some, there's some legitimate differences between what science has said over here and what God's word would say over here. If we start at the position that God's word is true, the question is, does the evidence support that or does it counter that? I would contend the evidence supports it, but we're going to walk through that and step into that space. I don't think you can get around the words of Jesus and the rest of the evidence in the New Testament about what he said specifically and the other authors have written that when we think about the wise man, he's the one, the wise woman is the one who hears the word of God and obeys. And I'll submit to you, and this is what we'll unpack in unique form next Sunday, that there is a consistency of testimony throughout the entire cover to cover in the scriptures that it's all true. It's all true. And we don't come to Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and go, well, it's poetry. It was maybe a little true, but not all true. And then come, quite frankly, to the resurrection and go, oh yeah, that's true. I mean, if we just think about that logically for a minute, like we're going to say we believe in a God who's able to raise the dead, but we don't believe in a God who's able to speak things into existence? That doesn't work. The consistent testimony of the Bible is that it's all true. And you've got to take it all or take none of it quite frankly. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here. Now again, he's, he's immediately limiting his words to Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But I think there is good reason, solid reason for us to apply his words more broadly. But the one who hears and is a wise man doesn't just take the parts he likes. Doesn't just take the parts that feel good or the parts that may be easier to understand. Now it's the one who hears and does these things. And the consistent testimony of the scriptures, as Jesus contends in regards to what Moses wrote, as Paul contends in regards to what the sacred writings were able to do, they are all about Jesus. 
He is there in the beginning. He is the agent of creation. He is the promise in response to the fall. He is the image of the clothing that Adam and Eve were given. He is the one foretold of because it is all about him. And that's what he's telling us. Hear what I have to say. Respond in obedience. There will be stability. Because all our hope is in him. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you've spoken. We admit and confess, I admit and confess, there's parts I don't understand. But I believe you've spoken. I believe that you have, you've revealed in your word not everything there is to reveal, but what you want us to know. And you've done so for the purpose of leading us to Jesus. And so God, that's, that's where our hope is. And so as we turn our focus and attention from his words specifically to words that are a part of the law of Moses and a part of the sacred writings, God, would you help us to see and would you shine a spotlight on where and how Jesus is the point? May we not miss that like those religious leaders did. Because he's where all our hope is found. We pray this in his good name. Amen.